Psalm 32, verse 6 and 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, everyone who is, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So while we are still under stay-at-home orders, let's continue to pray and ask God to help us wisely plan our next course of action. You know, one day we'll have to open up our stores, offices, recreational sites, but most importantly, our churches. Because for people of faith, next to the nuclear home, the church is priority and absolutely necessary for one's spiritual growth and maturation. So that's why I ask that you pray for the leaders here, but also in our community, this township, the state, the nation, and the world. Leaders have a lot of power. And while all of them, all of them are still under the authority of God, what they decide will affect us in a significant way. So that's why the Bible directs us in Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 to continue to pray for them. So let's keep all authority figures that God has placed over us in prayer. Until then, in the course of the next few weeks, I'd like to talk about something that we may initially find so basic, so basic to our faith, and at the same time, so deep that we can literally spend our lifetime exploring it. Yes, I am talking about the gospel. Hopefully, we will be able to go over some of the main elements of what the gospel is and how it impacts Packs us as believers and the overall church. So, what is the gospel? Well, gospel means good news. In a most concise form, we understand the gospel to mean we are saved by grace alone, through Christ, I'm sorry, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, in the most concise base form, we understand the gospel to mean that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, simply knowing this may not be enough. You might be like, what? Why? Because to truly understand the good news, we must first understand the bad news. We must know what the bad news is. Because the good news might not even be good news unless you understand what kind of situation you're in. Good news. You just won a million dollars. Woo. Bad news. You're going to die tonight in your sleep. Imagine that's the news that you've been given. You're not going to walk away from that thinking, well, at least I won a million dollars. No one's going to think that. And as far as the gospel is concerned, we need to understand what the bad news is first. We have an enemy. We all know it because we can feel it. 
life is not all dandy. It's not all butterflies and soft ice cream with rainbow sprinkles. There is an incredible force against us. That's right. There is. And it's not someone that you know. It's not your parents. You know, some of you may have grown up thinking, if only they had loved me more. I heard there is a difference if you are of Asian American descent. That's not what you think. A lot of Asian Americans tend to think this way. I wish I wasn't such a disappointment. So there's, there's two kinds of thinking that children grow up if you're a millennial. If only they had loved me more versus I wish I wasn't such a disappointment. But in the end, there is this big uh, enmity between you and your parents, right? But it's not your parents. Your parents are not your worst enemy. It's not your boss at work. He or she does not see all the work that I do. I'm underappreciated. I hate that guy or that woman. It's not your boss at work. It's not even the person who actually did harm you in a way that you'd rather not mention. That's not your worst enemy. According to the Bible, they are not your worst enemy. So, is it the devil? Is the devil your worst enemy? No. The devil is not your worst enemy. Who is our worst enemy? God is your worst enemy. It's like, what? No. Jesus is my friend. Satan is my enemy. And then we go around binding demons. So I look at the Bible. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it talks about us being the enemies of God. In Colossians 1.21, it says, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. The word hostile here in Colossians is the word to be enemies with. When you are doing evil deeds, you make enemies with the one who is not evil. You make enemies with the one who is a holy God. Let's look at James chapter 4, verse 4. This is what James says. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Our minds are hostile against God and we would rather be, be friends with the world than with a holy God. The first deception is still pervasive and it rages in our minds today. Did God really say? No, he didn't say that. He's just a killjoy. You'll have more fun if you reject God and his ways and his laws and live the way you want to. And that way, you will be God. And from the very beginning to this very moment, the unrelenting rebellion against God still rages on. So who is God that we should care about rebelling against him or not? Well, in the beginning, God created. To be created is to have purpose. It's to have 
meaning. We didn't appear on this earth in this moment in history by just any happenstance. We didn't come into existence out of sheer chance or luck. This is a philosophical, not just improbability, but an impossibility. But why are we drawn to such reasoning? Well, it's just chance that you happen to be here in this space, in this time. Why are we drawn to such reasoning? Because this is the bottom line. We don't want to need God. We do not want to need God. That's the bottom line. If I had set a spinning top on my hand, if you don't know what a spinning top is, I guess it's uh, most recently for me depicted in the movie Inception. There's a spinning top, right? Um, and kids nowadays have something called Beyblades. My wife's uh, nephew loves it. So you buy like a $20 top that you can make for 50 cents, but it's all good, right? Uh, but you, if I have a spinning top in my hand, right? And I stop spinning it, then it ceases to become a spinning top. I want you to picture that because God has set the universe in motion and he holds it all in his hands. The universe is set at such a delicate balance and that nothing has gone terribly awry, that life was completely annihilated yet, yet. And this is something that we all, especially in recent days, have noticed or probably feel or realize life is incredibly delicate. And that's because God holds us up. In Colossians 1.17 it says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. We're going to go through a lot of Bible verses this morning. And hopefully this is to show the truth of what we are being presented here. The only thing holding any of us up so that our foot doesn't slip and we fall into the pit of despair is the hand of God. And yet all the while we are pushing up against him, screaming obscenities at him, saying, get out of here, I don't need you. Because we don't fear God. We fear other things. We fear other things like this virus or the loss of our finances or our health or our family, but we do not fear God. But who is your greatest threat? And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So what is this fear? And what is this fear of the Lord? In Proverbs 8.13 it says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It's to hate evil. And the offense of sin, this evil, is the offense of spitting at the one who holds you. That's what not hating evil and embracing evil is. But rather we embrace whatever, which way the current takes you in this world. Oh, this is popular. Oh, this is what people want. 
oh, this is what will gain me notoriety, fame, appreciation, accolades. And you embrace that instead. When God holds you up, out of his sheer mercy, he holds you over the pits of hell. And this is what I imagine. I imagine a very narrow ice bridge. And it's not like completely frozen. It's like that melting ice, so it's incredibly slippery. And this narrow ice bridge is over a vast canyon. And if you were to fall, you would fall deep into the abyss. So crossing the bridge is impossible, and you are on this bridge. And the only reason why you're even able to stay on this bridge is because of His mercy. As long as you have breath in this life, you breathe it under the mercy of God. But we have taken God's mercy as a license to sin. And now the wrath of God is being unleashed. This is the eternal judgment. In Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. And you know, why is that? Because we see in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, it's we who oppose and exalt ourselves to so-called godness, to an object of worship. Just look at our media today. Who are you elevating? And so that you take the seat at the temple of God, proclaiming yourself to be God. Not only do you turn away from God, but by your words and deeds, you turn others away from the faith as well. In Acts chapter 13, we saw the example of Elymas, the magician, because that's what Elymas mean, means. And opposed, it says it, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And that's why Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, would stand up and say, You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And so why is the preaching of the gospel such an urgent matter? And the answer is because of Romans 1.18. Why is the preaching of the gospel such an urgent matter? The answer is the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And how is it being revealed? The wrath of God is revealed as he hands men over to evil. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24 to 32, we see that a person is increasing in their wickedness, and that is a proof and a sign of God's judgment. The more heinous our idolatry, the more brazen sin becomes in our society. You know, a lot of people have been asking me, oh, huge, what TV shows or dramas are you watching? And I, I'm, I'm, every time I'm in a meeting and people ask me, I'm honest, I'm telling people it's really difficult to watch TV today because 
almost everything is reflective of sin. It's not only embracing sin, it's celebrating sin. There's almost no TV show that you can watch in American television that doesn't, isn't like overlaid and saturated with sex. It's always about sex. And I can't watch it. Um, so we've been watching Korean drama, and it's not that much better. <laughs> I mean, but still, it's like it's very difficult to even watch anything because this is the evidence of God's wrath being revealed in our society. Holiness is deprecating, it's depreciating, and sin is being elevated. Jonathan Edwards, who's um, many times many times has been called the most prominent American theologian in our history, gave a sermon on Enfield, uh, Enfield, Connecticut. It's right on the northern tip of Connecticut on July 8th, 1741. And it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. People, after hearing the sermon, would cry out for mercy because the truth of the wrath of God was being revealed to them by the Holy Spirit through His Word. In that sermon, he would say this, But the foolish children of men miserably delude themselves in their own schemes and in confidence in their own strength and wisdom. They trust nothing but a shadow. The greater part of those heretofore have lived under the same means of grace and are now dead are undoubtedly gone to hell. And it was not because they were not as wise as those who are now alive. It was not because they did not lay out matters as well for themselves to secure their own escape. If we could speak with them and inquire of them one by one whether they expected when alive and when they used to hear about hell ever to be the subjects of misery, we doubtless should hear one and another reply, No. I never intended to come here. I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I thought I should contrive well for myself. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take effectual care, but it came upon me unexpected. I did not look for it at the time, and in that matter, it came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness. I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I could do hereafter. And when I was saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction came upon me. We take God's mercy as a license to sin and break his holy laws. But we should not fool ourselves into thinking that it's fooling God. And the wrath of God will come to those that rebel. And it will always come as a sudden and unexpected destruction. This is the wrath of an infinite God. The infinite punishment that is deserved for an offending and infinite God is fierce and it is fearsome. 
And why should he give you more things? Why should God give you more good things when you continue to spit in his face? Why should he give you more good things when you continue to use them to defile God and his people? The verdict is this. The judgment of God, therefore, is a just judgment. Romans chapter 3 It says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. uh, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God, and yet we know that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. If you grew up in church, this is what you learned in Proverbs chapter 1. Wisdom is the way to life but there is no fear of God before their eyes so why say all this why do you go through why did I just go through a whole spiel about all of this this wrath of God and how we rebel against God how there's punishment for us that's well deserved well number one Because it's true. Because it's true. And if you think about it, when you are told, when you are told right now that God will judge you, and a result, you became very angry, which side of the law does that tell you you're on? Because the innocent have nothing to fear. The guilty, however, is another story. Number two, I tell you this because the Bible tells you this, but number two, because you cannot understand why Good Friday is good. You cannot understand why the good news is good news unless you understand why Jesus died. You cannot understand the good news without understanding the bad news. The gospel is the good news because it is about the forgiveness of sin. This is what Jesus was able to offer when he died on the cross. He was able to offer us the forgiveness of sin And this is where we're confused in modern society and contemporary Christianity. The gospel isn't about fulfilling your wishes or your dreams or your potential. It's not even about getting getting rid of your shame or overcoming your guilt. Sin isn't when you don't become everything you can be or you could have been. That's not what sin is. 
And so Jesus is not about making your life everything you can be so you can live your best life now. Think about how absurd that is. If you are living your best life now, then what kind of life will you be living afterwards? Those that seek their best life now will live their best life now. And that's actually the worst news for you. That's the worst thing that can happen for you. The definition of sin isn't you not getting along with somebody. It's not you not fulfilling your potential, not living your best life now. The very essence of sin is that you have offended God. You have offended the holy God. When David sinned, what did he do? You know what he did? He first committed lust by spying on a married woman, Bathsheba, who was bathing when he committed adultery and got her pregnant too. And what else did he do? He devised a conspiracy to murder her husband, Uriah, by maneuvering his whole army. He took all his power, everything that had been given to him, all his authority. He maneuvered his whole army into getting Uriah killed. And after all this, by the way, this is why I don't understand. Why are people so power hungry? Why is it so much so that you feel like you deserve power? If your innate desire is to sin, shouldn't you say, ooh, don't give me power. I'll use it to destroy people's lives. Shouldn't you be fearful in handling any kind of authority? Why is it that we covet authority so much? Because of the ways of the world that has gotten to us thinking that we can be God or we should be God. But when David is confronted by Nathan, in Psalm 51, he repents. How does David repent? He says this, and this is his prayer to God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This may be hyperbole, but it is showing us the root of sin. Sin at its core is rebellion against God. And his rebellion against God would hurt his people and would break the social order that God had created. And so ultimately, David saw what his sin did, not to just himself, not to other people, but to God. And so the gospel is about redeeming your relationship with a holy God. Sin is an assault on God. And so what exactly is this sin? And the Bible shows us what sin is. The Bible shows us what we can measure ourselves up against. What is our measuring stick? God's law. But maybe a better question to clear that up is, what what do we measure ourselves against uh, to who do we measure ourselves up against? The better question to clear up is to whom are we measured up against? Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus, after starting off his beautiful beatitudes, he ends this chapter by saying, you therefore must be 
perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is and always has been God. God is the benchmark and model of holiness. Now, I'd like to make a quick distinction between perfection and perfectionism. A perfectionist or perfectionism is when you have your own standards of perfection and you get upset or deflated when you don't measure up to that for whatever reason. It's actually a very self-serving and prideful way of trying to show that you're better than everyone else. Oh, I'm such a perfectionist, right? It's a brag or a boast to say, oh, I'm a perfectionist. However, to understand perfection is to understand that every sin is an open act of rebellion against an infinitely holy God. And because of this sin, you are under wrath. Jesus isn't some good teacher. We've gone over Matthew. Jesus isn't some good teacher. He is not your psychiatrist. He is not your therapist. He is not your boyfriend. That's just weird. He's here to fix your relationship with God. And that's why the sinner needs to be terrified. Every time, every single person that an angel came to An angel, that means just a being that was in the presence of God, has cowered under fear or was like a dead man. The terror of God will be far greater than that of angels. But there is not much terror going on in the world today. We need to watch like clowns or depictions of demonic spirits to scare us. But I am here to proclaim to you that these things are nothing compared to the wrath of God. So what do we do? Remember the standard. We must be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. And so no manner of good works will save anyone because in the end no one can be like God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What this is showing us is that short of utter perfection, you cannot attain salvation on your own. You can't say that you're near perfect because by definition, near perfect means you are not perfect. You can't say You're almost not a murderer because you've only slightly killed one person. You are a murderer. You are a sinner. So what is the answer? How can we be reconciled to a God whom we constantly offend day after day, whether we're outside or whether we're quarantined inside? That's why the answer is the gospel. That's why the gospel truly is good news. The gospel is the completed work of Jesus Christ. And this is what I want to extrapolate on in the coming weeks. The gospel is the completed work of Jesus Christ. So the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. 
You must fear God, not corona or finances or any other material thing. You must not fear the things that destroy just the flesh, but the one who destroys both body and soul. The fear of the Lord will let you see the absolute necessity of a Savior. This is the Savior that took on the wrath of God that was meant for the sinner. The sinner who should have been cast into eternal, infinite punishment. This is the, this is the good news about a Savior who took that for the sinner. That's why it's good news. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 to 21, this is Paul's appeal to the church in Corinth. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as I end today's message, I want to leave you with this. In John chapter 3, verse 16, this is what the word of God says. For God so loved the world. This is the world upon which God's wrath is bound. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. My friends, this is why this is the good news if you truly understand the bad news. And this is why the gospel is so incredible that we can talk about it for 30 minutes, but we could also explore it for a lifetime and continue to be flabbergasted, continue to be blown away, continue to be just awe-inspired by what God has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, deception is continually around us. The deception that first felled Adam and Eve, where we could be like God or we are God. This is, this is an utter lie. We admit to you that we have fallen for it time and time again in our actions, words, deeds, and even thoughts. We have lifted ourselves up, thinking that we are actually lifting ourselves up, forgetting that it is you that holds us purely by your mercy. Lord, to those that cry out to you, that call out to the name of Christ right now, we ask that your Holy Spirit will continue to do a good work in them, perfecting them, making them like you. Oh God, help us as your people continue to turn away from the ways of the world and to turn to you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen.